Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So we are back. What a relief to um, be with you here mid-morning. I've had to get up every morning this week at 3.45 to present Good Morning Britain to try and make sense of the Conservative Party conference. And now at a decent hour, I can ask you what is going on. Presumably you're in Manchester? I was up actually at 3.30 this morning with my little baby, but uh, I was not in Manchester this week. But I'll tell you what did happen to me this week. I, I was walking my dog on the Latimer Road in West London, went past this pub that was full, looked through the window. It was raining. I thought I might be able to go in. And there was Ed Sheeran standing on a table playing to a pub crowd. Tribute act? No, the real Ed Sheeran. And he... I promise you, he didn't know who I was, which probably made a big difference here. He he beckoned me into the pub. And so uh, I would have missed out on Ed Sheeran if I'd been in Manchester and I was made to feel a lot more welcome there than I probably would have been if I'd been at the Tory conference. Did the dog enjoy Ed Sheeran? The dog, Albie, we'll give her a plug, yeah. uh, was incredibly well behaved. <laughs> so you weren't in Manchester. Look, we're going to have to start, though, by talking about what has gone on this week in the Conservative Party, their conference up there in Manchester, Rishi Sunak's big speech has he done enough to turn things around to win the Tories the next election? Is it time for a change to Rishi or time for a change to Labour? That's something we've got to talk about with the Labour conference coming up. Big challenge for Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor. That's a job we've both done and we know how difficult it is. And then the issue you may have missed, turmoil in America, almost a budget shutdown. The speakers had to resign to be thrown out of office, but as part of his final budget deal, funding for Ukraine was excluded from agreement in Congress about the way forward for the budget in America. And what's that going to mean for not just Ukraine, but also British politics in the coming months as well? We'll talk about that third. But let's start with Manchester, the Conservative Party conference. Rishi Sunak, having done loads of interviews where he refuses to tell people what he's going to say, finally yesterday opens up in his conference speech and his positioning was quite surprising. Let's have a listen. People are right. Politics doesn't work the way it should. We've had 30 years of a political system which incentivizes the easy decision, not the right one. 30 years 
of vested interests standing in the way of change. 30 years of rhetorical ambition which achieves little more than a short-term headline. And why? Because our political system is too focused on short-term advantage, not long-term success. Politicians spent more time campaigning for change than actually delivering it. It doesn't have to be this way. I won't be this way. Conference, our mission is to fundamentally change our country. You made some big announcements about HS2 smoking education, but actually that 30 years attack. I think That's you and me, Ed. I think exactly <laughs> he, he was aiming very squarely at Osborne and Balls. But the thing which is really, well, I mean, and others as well. But the interesting thing here is, you know, over the last few weeks, you've been saying he's got to define himself against the past to succeed. But I took you as saying that meant he's got to show he's changed from the chaos of Liz Truss and from Boris Johnson, not going down that road, but instead getting back to proper, serious, stable, responsible politics. But he's decided instead in this speech to not talk about the last two prime ministers and their chaos, but the last 30 years, and almost to try, to me, kind of quite incredibly, to play this sort of outsider, Faragey, Trumpian, trust-like attack on the old establishment. I mean, why is he doing this? Well, so I'm going to try and be dispassionate here because, you know, I was very disappointed, upset with the decision about HS2, which was the central policy decision of the conference and of his speech. You know, I've been saying for some time, I've said it privately to him, and I've been saying it publicly, which is you've got to try and define yourself as a new prime minister. And you can define yourself on the economic grounds against Liz Truss and the chaos of that short premiership because you ran against her to be the party leader. You lost because you warned this might happen. And you can also run against Boris Johnson and his ethical behaviour because you resigned from his cabinet as chancellor on those sort of ethical issues. But what he's chosen to do is go far beyond that and run not just against Johnson and Truss, but David Cameron and, by the way, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair and so on. He's presenting himself as the time for a change candidate. Now, that takes some brass neck, as Nick Robinson put it to him on uh, on the Today programme this morning, because after 13 years of Tory government, to say you are the change is a pretty audacious move and feels like it has all the odds uh, stacked against it uh, in terms of whether it's going to work. I will be charitable because I think you could argue he hasn't really got many alternatives. It may be that he has concluded that there is no way for him to win this election if he just runs as the continuity candidate, that he's got to roll the dice. We've all been saying he's got to roll the dice. Well, he has rolled the dice and he's presenting himself as Mr. Change. But to be Mr. Change, you have to live Mr. Change. And I'm not sure that he and his cabinet are ready to do that. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was clearly the change in 1979, change from what had gone on before that in policy. But Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor's Exchequer. And before he became Prime Minister, he has been part of many of the things which have happened in our country in recent years. It's very hard for him to be the outsider change guy. John Major was the change for Margaret Thatcher. But it seems as though he's not really willing to play that card because he's almost aping the anti-establishment rhetoric but, of Liz Truss. But don't you, so I think he is looking a bit at what John Major did. 
the thing is that John Major was the first change from Margaret Thatcher. Rishi Sunak is the fifth prime minister that the Conservatives have presented to the public in the last 13 years. I think there are some parallels here with Gordon Brown. I don't know what you think about this, Ed. I think Gordon Brown felt he was intellectually and morally a bit superior to those who had gone before him, to put it politely. I think Rishi exudes this, like, I'm better than all that's gone before me. I do the work. I stay up late. I'm actually putting the hard work into finding out the details of these policies, unlike it, my predecessors, including, by the way, Cameron and Osborne. And so I'm I'm rolled into that attack. And in interviews, he often seems to exude the idea that the interviewer should be grateful that he's allowing them to ask him a question. I mean, it's, it's quite a strange so tone I, he gets to. And I think uh, Gordon Brown made a mistake in the tail end of that Labour administration to try and achieve such a break with Tony Blair, because I would say it was got a lot of bad blood. When, you know, they, you have to run some kind of continuity argument, because after all, voters had stuck with Labour through that period, and voters have stuck with the Conservatives through this period too. The danger is he trashes the brand, the Conservative brand. You could say it's already very damaged, but now you've got the Conservative Prime Minister trashing 13 years. What does it say about your cabinet? What does it say about your chance of the exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, who was in lots of those cabinets you're now saying were part of the vested interests and you know couldn't deliver long-term change? And then when it comes to the actual policies, I support the policy on smoking. I think that is a brave and right thing to do. The A-level policy you know, okay, there's a case to be made that British education needs to be shaken up, but we have had so many reforms of vocational education. They're only just introducing these things called T-levels and they're going to be getting rid of them. And what the what the speech didn't do was attack the economic consensus. If anything, he's, he's presented his premiership right from the beginning as a return to economic consensus after Liz Truss. So is he really the living, breathing change? Isn't he, when you look at him, not the outsider, He's not the mercurial maverick like Boris Johnson. He's not the brand new kid on the block like David Cameron or Tony Blair was. You know, he is someone who looks like he's been a politician for a long time. And I don't think he'll necessarily put it off. But then you have to say to yourself, if that's not what you're going to do, what are you going to do when you're so far behind in the polls? The thing is, he had to have a conference speech with policy, which would really, really drive the autumn. And I'm not sure. Look, I'm quite pro the smoking policy. I think there's going to be a bit of liberal backlash on the replacing of A-levels. It's what Labour should have done with the Tomlinson report, and it was ducked by Tony Blair. We tried to do this in a half-hearted way with diplomas. Good on him. None of this is going to happen for years. It's not going to change voters' lives in the next few months. I personally think HS2 is not going to have a huge impact on people's lives in the next year either. The most important thing is the economy. And this is going to be an election where people are thinking, who do I blame? And they're going to blame Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives unless he chooses to blame Liz Truss and her mess up in the strongest terms. And that he seemed to to duck because he was almost sort of aping the anti-establishment Trussian Johnson style of politics. I don't know what you thought. I read David Cameron's tweet about HS2 and felt in that he wasn't really talking about HS2. It was more, why is Rishi Sunak trashing my whole leadership and approach to politics like I was some kind of short-term person. I mean... And, you know, I, I saw David Cameron this morning, as it happens, and he is understandably very cross at this charge that somehow the Cameron premiership didn't focus on long-term decisions. You know, remember, we tried to present it, not unlike Rishi Zunak's conference slogan this week, as long-term economic 
plans and the like. There's an interesting rupture here that Rishi Sunak has chosen to undertake with the Cameroon period. Because when Rishi Sunak arrived as prime minister after Liz Truss, even though he had been a Brexit supporter, he was seen by the supporters of David Cameron as a return after Theresa May and then Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss to the Cameroon way of doing things. He made deliberate efforts to bring people back into the fold to sort of get the party back together again, if you like. Even though he was a Brexiteer? Even though he was a Brexiteer. That was sort of overlooked. And by the way, I would say in passing, Rishi, if you're keen on taking a serious look at the long-term consequences of things you do, you might have done that when you uh, voted for Brexit. But we'll we'll part that for another, another time. He has instigated a breach with the Cameroon period. And that has come as a bit of a surprise to me and my friends and including to David. And, you know, we'll see whether it's just a bit of rhetoric in a conference speech, whether he's serious about it. But he is surrounded by the people who worked in that administration, worked very hard for that administration. So if it's just a device, if it's just a clever way of doing a conference speech, and let's be fair, it was a pretty good, well-delivered conference speech, fine. But if he's really going to set about trying to unpick or tear down what I regard as the achievements of that government, then he is opening up a new fight in the Tory party. And that is not something I think is going to help him electorally. It was interesting when he was being interviewed this morning by Nick Robinson on the Today programme. There was a lot of I and a lot of my leadership, my prime ministership. But actually, he's rejected Truss Johnson. Um, he was one of the people who knifed Boris Johnson in public and then clearly um, with Liz Truss. He's also now rejected Cameron Osborne and that more centre-right approach to um, politics. I kind of felt this morning, I, me, this was rather an isolated guy. And if things get difficult, we'll find out where his real supporters are, if they're there. That's quite right. I think there's an interesting other observation which we might look to, which is what does the whole Tory conference tell you about the state of the Conservative Party? And we had a good question on this from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Hannah and I am loving the podcast. When we see videos like the one of Pretty Patel dancing or I know in previous years there's been ones of people doing karaoke, does that mean that they think the conference is going well? Or is that just a typical part of a political conference? I've got to say, Hannah, late night singing karaoke in the bars, a conference that is not always a sign that things are going well. Quite often it means it's been a terrible couple of days and we're trying to forget it and drown our sorrows in the bar. So I don't think that's a great indicator. There are some really important indicators of how a conference is going. And the number of business exhibitors who are paying to demonstrate their wares in the conference centre is a big indicator. I think Labour will do well this year. Also, in the bars and in the conference hall, are the media flocking round to hear what particular influential advisers are saying about what's going on or are they kind of ignoring them and not really caring because they're going to be irrelevant? George and I both know how that feels like on both sides of that. And also generally, is the media mood that you've got momentum and you're succeeding or are they getting frustrated and annoyed? You can sort of feel that in the conference hall. Yeah, I think the party conference is a very good thermometer of how's the party doing. And when you're on the verge of coming into office, then 
everything is incredibly slick and smooth and everyone flocks to your conference. And when things are going disastrously wrong, it usually falls apart at the party conference. And there are certain indicators. You've given a few. I would say a good indicator is whose fringe speeches are getting the biggest audiences. Where are the queues forming to get into these little conference halls? We should explain to people there's there's a main speech going on usually in a big hall, but it's a conference centre. There'll be lots of little rooms and there'll be lots of side events happening at lunchtime and in the evening. And of course here, Liz Truss turned up, the only one of the former Tory leaders I'm aware of who turned up at the party conference. About an hour before the Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, was going to make know, his speech. It was, it was astonishing. By the way, Ed, one of my first jobs in politics was to look after Margaret Thatcher at Tory party conferences, which shows A, how old I am, and B, what a nightmare that was because she used to turn up, all attention was on her, and it completely overshadowed whatever William Haig, who was then the Tory leader, was trying to say or do. I was talking to Eric Pickles, who I work with closely on the Holocaust Foundation. He said his early job back in those days in the 80s was to sit next to Dennis Thatcher to make sure that he didn't laugh, clap or stand up in inappropriate moments when dodgy people were making dodgy speeches from the conference hall. My main task was also to avoid Margaret Thatcher bumping into Ted Heath, who, believe it or not, was also <laughs> at the conference back then. So, um, I, so Liz Truss turning up, she made a stir. But th- there were big, big cues. There were. All snaking through the, the conference. surprise, it wasn't Liz Truss who stole the limelight. It was Nigel Farage. I, you know, I hate even bringing his name up. But unfortunately, he was there you know, because he was a GB News presenter. So he had a reason to be there. He wasn't just there to go to the Tory as, conference. As always with um, <laughs> Nigel Farage, the thing he's associated with is usually imploding, in this case, GB News. But he, you know, merges scot-free and he's a sort of Pied Piper character. And he's, you know, he's leading the Tory party you know, to his merry tune again. And you would have thought the party had learnt, but... But all these uh, people kept popping up. Tom Tugendhat, uh, Rishi Sunak saying, well, of course we'd welcome Nigel Farage back into the Conservative Party fold. Really? Well, I think there's a very interesting question. If, and it's a big if, but if Nigel Farage was given back membership of the Conservative Party, if he applied, you know, there's no indication he would apply, but if he applied to be a, the, a member of the Conservative Party, that would definitely go, by the way, straight to Rishi Sunak's desk. Well, he said yes, hasn't and, he? He basically but, gave him a tick. Well, then, you know, you have opened the door to Farageism inside the Tory party, not led by its proxies, Farage's, but by Nigel Farage himself. Farageism. Look, we saw Nigel Farage dancing with Preeti Patel. We heard Suella Braverman's speech to the conference. We know what Liz Truss was saying. Farageism is now alive and well within well, the Conservative not, Party. It's not inconceivable that if the Conservative Party lost the general election, and if Nigel Farage had rejoined as a Tory party member, he doesn't even necessarily have to be a Tory MP, then he could be a potential future leader of the Conservative Party. Why have Farage light when you can have the real thing? Right. Well, that is definitely condemning the Tory party to many, many years in the wilderness if that happens. This might be, finally, Nigel Farage's way into Parliament because he stood, I think, seven times. Is it seven times to be a candidate from a small party? In our system, it's very hard to get elected from one of the small outsider parties. But if Nigel Farage did become a Conservative member this year and... Um, he wanted to have a seat. He could get a seat late and bing, bang, bong. Well, as Donald Trump demonstrates in the United States, it is far easier to take over one of the main parties than to run for a small party or as an independent. And this may well be Farage's route. I mean, I certainly hope fervently as a member of the Tory party myself that that is not. How would you feel about it? I would be appalled by it. But If you and David Cameron are having a chat, 
about oh, we would be appalled of, by it, of course. But I think we would stand and fight. You wouldn't just be appalled by it. You'd it, do something. It, it, you know, it, I think it's probably not unlike how you have felt when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. And that is another example of entryism where Corbyn, instead of standing as a communist or revolutionary socialist, stood as a Labour MP to be the party leader, became the party leader and was presented by the Labour Party at two general elections. And, and then the last general election was, as a result, very, very soundly defeated. We should now probably turn our attention to what's happening next week, the Labour Party conference. And this is the post-Corbyn Labour Party. This is Keir Starmer, who has restored order to Labour, who has already demonstrated he is time for a change in the Labour Party. I think the big test for him and in particular for his team, including Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, is whether they can be time for the change that Rishi Sunak says the country is crying out for. So before we get on to the wider question of the Labour conference, there is this challenge that Rishi Sunak has thrown to Labour on HS2. HS2 was a policy originally announced by a Labour government. They are meeting in Liverpool. There are lots of Labour mayors in the north who support it. You know, putting on your former shadow chancellor hat, how would you respond to that challenge from Sunak? Well, look, the Prime Minister is trying to say, I've set a trap for Labour. And if traps are that obvious, then if you're any good, you avoid them. I think Pat McFadden, who is now the kind of policy guru, was the shadow chief secretary number two to Rachel Reeves, has already said that the moment the money for HS2 is being spent on something else, then that is the reality Labour will face going into government. And to come along and say, we're also going to spend the money on HS2 to carry it on, that would be an unfunded commitment. And the only way to fund it easily would be to take all the money, which is now going to bus fares and to local train lines and to road improvements and the east-west northern link and uh, scrap all of that to spend it on the Birmingham-Manchester link, there is no way they're going to do that. So I think we'll hear over the weekend Labour being very clear that they are not going to fall into that trap. They're not going to make a commitment now to HS2. They may say that, of course, we'll continue to look at all these issues in the coming months and years, but they are not going to um, fall into Rishi Sunak's trap. And that goes through like a broader point about what Labour has to do at this conference, in particular, the speech of Rachel Reeves on Monday, the Shadow Chancellor, because we know what this is like, George, because we've both done this. In the final year before an election, you simultaneously are trying to support your leader setting out a vision for the future, but also being absolutely clear in your speech and to all of your colleagues that we aren't going to make unfunded commitments, we aren't going to spend money we haven't got, to be clear that we're going to be tough in our decision-making and to try and stave off now all the attacks you know are going to come over the next year from your opponents. In in my case, you saying you're spending money you've not got, you'll have to raise taxes. Rachel Rees has got to close all of that down and to open that up by making some open-ended commitment on HS2, she's not going to do it. I, well, I agree with you. I think it would be very unlikely that Labour's going to commit to HS2. If I were them, I would sort of keep the hope alive by saying, we can have some commission looking at transport links to the north in the future. And as Rishi Sunak's demonstrated, once you're in government, none of these rules that apply to oppositions apply to the real chancellor and the real prime minister because they can just 
turn policy on a halfpenny. I think there is. And a- you know all about that. I mean, look, uh, you are the person who delighted in saying they're going to make an unfunded commitment, they're going to borrow for investment, and that will push up the national debt. George, you reap what you sow. Having spent all those years stopping Labour shadows, making any of those kind of commitments. Rachel Reeves is not going to do it even for your pet project. I was, I was in fact, look, the, the, the shadow chancellor I followed most closely was Gordon Brown, not the six Tory shadow chancellors who had come before me when I was appointed in 2005, but the last successful shadow chancellor, who was Gordon Brown. And you know, in my conversations with Rachel Reeves, I know she is interested in how the Conservative opposition in the run-up to 2010 positioned itself as well. And there are some parallels. First of all, the economic backdrop is not a great one. It's not the global financial crisis, of course, that we uh, faced in 2008-9. But let's be clear, you know, the economy may well be heading into recession. Uh, guilt rates, the real interest rates out there in the economy are at 20-year highs. You know, there is talk of banks getting into trouble. We just had the news today that Metro Bank might be in trouble. So th- it's a pretty gloomy, difficult backdrop. And the tax burden at its highest level since the Second World War. A point that Liz Truss and you will be constantly making over the next year, probably. <laughs> no, I, I think Rachel has achieved some things that a shadow chancellor often doesn't achieve. She immediately looks like someone who could be Chancellor Exchequer. <laughs> there were plenty of Tory shadow chancellors who never cleared that hurdle. And she's got the background as a Bank of England economist. You and I both know her well. I think she's presented herself as a very serious person who is going to take the task of running the nation's finances very seriously. I think her challenge is this. You know, what is Labour's answer, though, to all these big economic problems? How is Labour going to improve the health service or the education system if there is no money? A Labour shadow chancellor, I think, has a particular task to say, I'm going to be safe with your money, because that's the principal reason people don't vote Labour. They're nervous about that. But there's a different task she's got to do this week, which is to say, despite that, despite the fact I'm safe with your money, despite the fact I'm going to be very tough on spending commitments, I do have an idea of how to get Britain out of this economic mess. And that's what I'm going to be listening to her on Monday for. If you go back to 1996, uh, the Gordon Brown final speech um, at the Labour conference before the 97 election, he was talking about tough fiscal rules, not making spending commitments where he couldn't show where the money was going to come from. But also, there was a windfall tax, which um, was in the newspapers that weekend to be £10 billion to pay for a New Deal jobs programme for young people, to get young people back to work. And this was after 15, 20 years where unemployment had been the big scourge of our economy, but also sucking up huge amounts of resources. The New Deal was a massive programme to get people back to work, which he could say would then save money, release money to spend on wider priorities. And I think you are right that for um, for Rachel Reeves, has she got something which is positive and galvanising about the future in quite the same way as the New Deal in 1996? So I think at the moment, the Starmer opposition, including Rachel Reeves, has not created anything like the excitement that the Blair Brown opposition created in the run-up to 97. By the way, I was working in 10 Downing Street at the time and attending Labour conferences as the Conservative Observer, as I said before. So, you know, I saw this close up. There was a genuine feeling that Labour had a post-Thatcher answer. Tony Blair used to make this argument that the country had been a producer society of big unionised workforces. It was now a consumer society. That is what had happened in the 1980s and 1990s. 1990s. And new Labour was the answer to the 
question the country was asking, which is we've sorted out the economy now, but the public services look like a mess and people have been left behind by the Thatcher revolution. I don't think yet that Starmer, Reeves et al. have either posed the question or delivered an answer other than to say, you're tired of 13 years of Tory government, it's time for a change and we Labour are the change. And the great mistake sometimes Labour politicians make is there's, you know, there's a sort of moral righteousness in the Labour movement, which animates it. And there's just an assumption people can obviously see it's better having a Labour person than run the health service than a Tory person. And the country doesn't always agree with that. So this is the big task for the conference switch. But it comes with risks because, of course, the more you set out, the bigger target you give to Sunak and Number 10 to fire their arrows at your policy and to say, yeah, OK, we know Labour are the favourites to win the election, so let's imagine it's Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, Rachel Reeves as Chancellor, and let's go after these policies they've just told us about. Of course, it's possible as a shadow chancellor to overdo the discipline, the seriousness. Back in 2009, you chose your conference speech to really ram home how tough it was going to be under an Osborne chancellorship. And some people say that may have lost you a majority in the following year. So in that speech, which I spent a lot of time thinking about and, of course, was coordinated closely with David Cameron, that was a speech where I said, we're all in this together. And I announced that the state pension age would go up from 65 to 66. I said that we would freeze public sector salaries. I said that we wouldn't pay tax credits to people uh, who had more than £50,000 in income. And that was a lot of detail. For an Why opposition. did you feel the need to go into I, all that I, detail Well, it's then. a good question. I think the reason was, first of all, our central attack on Gordon Brown at the time was that he was not admitting that there needed to be cuts, even though Alistair Darling and Peter Mandelson and others at the time were saying... Gordon Brown should be honest about things. So we couldn't make the honesty charge stick if we weren't being honest. Second, I think we had to show that we did have a substantial idea of how to achieve those cuts that didn't involve cutting the NHS, which we thought was our biggest vulnerability. I think third, there was something which I know parties spend only about 5% of their time in opposition thinking about, which is you do need some kind of mandate. Mm -hmm. You, you need to have won an election, of course. There's no point just losing the election and you haven't got a mandate for anything. But if you've just won the election with nothing that you've put before the electorate that you can turn around after the election and say, I told you you were voting for this, then you're in real trouble. And in the coalition that followed 2010, I never, ever was accused of not having told them the truth before the election. You know, people said, oh, OK, you said this and sure enough, you've delivered it. My Liberal Democrat partners always had this challenge, which is, well, you didn't have said to us before the election there'd be austerity. And if you were Rachel Reeves' advisor and you were thinking about your experience trying to get a mandate, what's the thing you would be saying to her she should seek to get a mandate on? I think she has to get some kind of mandate for the tax rises, I presume, that Labour will want to introduce to fund better public services. Although she's been very clear there's going to be no tax rises well, on you, working people, no wealth tax. At but, the moment, she's very, very... But you can't get the money to save the NHS, as she would put it, from taxing private school fees and non-DOMs. There's just not, a, there's not enough billions of pounds there to do it. Um, they're hard to do these speeches. I mean, I personally, I would say being shadow chancellor is in many ways a harder job than being... Chancellor of the Exchequer. Although the leader of the opposition, David Cameron, did agree with you the following day in 2009. The challenge I had, and I know Ed Miliband will kick himself every day for the rest of his life for this, I in 
2014 had tried to signal tough decisions we were going to make about the uprating of benefits, about getting the deficit down, about tough fiscal rules. I was also saying that we would put the top rate of tax back up to reverse your cut, that we'd have a mansion tax on homes. But my big message was that we will not spend money we haven't got. We won't make unfunded commitments. Getting the deficit down is a priority, as it has to be for any government. Rachel Reeves is saying all of those things will do next Monday. And then, of course, the following day, Ed Miliband decided to do his speech without notes, um, something David Cameron had done a decade before. And uh, he forgot to mention the deficit entirely. And I remember driving out that afternoon from... Um, the conference on the motorway, about to stop at Burger King with a vet, listening to Nick Robinson saying the only thing anybody will remember, he told Radio 4 listeners, is that Ed Miliband cares so little about getting the deficit down, he forgot to mention it at all. And uh, it's a disaster. That is the hazard of giving a speech without notes. Giving a speech with notes is hard enough. He would have been I think, so How did you, we, we, oh. you... You were telling us last week about how you used to practice on the uh, ironing board, you know, in your hotel room, reading the speech out. The, these speeches are really hard to put together. The leader's speech even more so. It's an hour long. How did you manage to do the Shadow Chancellor's speech and help with the leader's speech as well? Two different speeches. Yeah, well, so first of all, I was completely focused on my speech until... I would switch into the Cameron speech. In the final 24 hours? Well, Cameron would start his speech in early September, So, um, which is the right way to do it. So I would have fed into it then, then I would have ducked out into my own speech. I had a kind of trusted team, not just my own political advisors, but also those friends of mine or fellow MPs who could help, who would come in. And one of the hardest tasks was writing the jokes because – you know, I just couldn't myself come up with those. Things. What, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not Gordon great... Brown used to say, "Do you have any jokes?" Yeah, and you always thought, oh, goodness at, at which point I would say, oh. "Where's Danny? Danny? That... Danny being Lord Finkelstein, Daniel Finkelstein, the joke Obi, machine. who is the joke machine." And maybe it says something that I think this is probably the first one of the first conferences where Danny Finkelstein has not been doing the Tory party jokes, which is why they were a bit flat, the jokes this year. They are so important jokes in politics because they are sometimes about uniting your team, your tribe, telling jokes which brings the hall together. They're also about defining in the public mind your opponents. Do you remember Tony Blair saying, Planet Portillo? back in 1994. And it just, it resonated for a long time, the sort of, you know, weirdness of these guys on a different uh, planet. And then sometimes it's just about getting a feel-good mood. The one I remember, 2001, we were desperately trying to persuade Gordon to tell a joke about, uh, there'd just been this revelation that John Major had had an affair, an illicit affair with Edwina Curry. And uh, this had just come out in a biography a couple of weeks before. Great thing to tell a joke about. And Gordon was so prudent. She just didn't want to tell a joke about this. I had all these lines, you know, about John Major popping out for a late night curry. Didn't want to touch any of that stuff. And then um, all he would agree to was, um, and as for John Major and uh, what's been going on, these Tories, what will they get up to next? That was it. That was his joke. Well, anyway, it was probably enough because he's quite a dual man. So it went it was... down brilliantly in the hall. It was absolutely <laughs> fabulous. But it was it, it, it was so cautious. But there you are. Great joke. I did, uh, the, well, I, of all the jokes that I delivered, the one I regret, which was a bit, a bit odd when I tell people this, but I regretted it the moment I delivered it, which was I told a joke about Eric Pickles, 
who was one of the fellow members of the cabinet. And let, let's put it this way, for those who don't know Eric, one of the slightly larger members of the cabinet. And I said, he is a model of lean government. And this joke had gone into the text the night before. And someone had said to me, one of my political advisors, you better warn Eric, you're going to tell a, tell a joke about him at the conference. So that morning at the breakfast in this hotel room, I see him, he's at the breakfast counter, he's got a big plate in front of him, he's got the black pudding, the beans, uh, the sausage, the bacon, loading up for the day is Eric. And I come up and say, Eric, um, I just want to have a quick word with you about my speech. And he goes, oh, you're not going to tell a fat joke, are you? <laughs> and I was like, uh, afraid I am. And I he just went, oh. He did get his revenge <laughs> I remember back. that year <laughs> so well. Can I, can I just say, I remember that year so well because I was all around the fringes, as you have to do a Shadow Chancellor, you have to tell lots and lots of jokes to fringe meetings as well, ones which aren't quite appropriate for the hall. And my line was, what's the one thing which unites Eric Pickles and Ed Miliband? They both hate jokes about bacon sandwiches. <laughs> it totally came out. He, of your he got joke. his own back when um, I made the mistake of posting a picture of myself eating a hamburger before I was about to deliver a, a posh hamburger, a Byron burger, and Eric Pickles responded by posting a picture of him eating a salad. And this made what was already a difficult situation for me in this stupid picture I posted even harder. And you know, what did be, he say in the post? He said, just putting the finishing touches to the speech, which is what I am. <laughs> anyway, I Good was well Eric. within his rights. And if he's listening to this, Eric, I'm very sorry about the fat joke. It's not only jokes, it's also perorations, which are hugely important. How you finish your speech, the thing which gives the uplift. And you were talking about you and David Cameron working on the Shadow Chancellor leader speeches. It wasn't always that way in the Blair Brown years. And... I remember 1996, again, that final conference before the election. It was the year where Britain had hosted the European Championships. England had done really, really well. The big song of the year was Football's Coming Home. And so, of course, politicians think, how can I take this iconic cultural moment and shape it politically? And on the this Sunday night at 11 at night, that late, with Gordon Brown speaking the next morning, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair finally exchanged the text of their speeches and it turned out that both of them had written the same ending to their speech and uh, there was this standoff and Gordon Brown said well I need to use that ending because my speech you know is already written and Tony Blair said I know but I need to use it because my speech is already written and Gordon Brown said I know but I'm going first and Tony Blair said I'm the leader of the Labour Party and so at 11.30 at night on the Sunday night, Gordon had to rip up his end and rewrite the whole thing from scratch. It was a total nightmare. And then on Tuesday, Tony Blair delivered this line. Labour has come home to you, so come home to us. Labour's coming home. So, of course, the big difference is that Gordon Brown in... 1996 was prepared to drop his line, which he probably wouldn't have been 10 years later when he was <laughs> Chancellor. And, and, and I think that's Amazing. a key thing for, you know, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are presenting themselves as a team pretty successfully. I don't think they were great friends beforehand, but they have clearly formed a partnership. And that's really important. Come back to Sunak and jokes. He told one joke that has apparently been referred to the police, which is a joke about Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, but it's interesting because... We've forgot. Refer to the police. 
yes, the SFB have already sent this joke to the Scottish police. Because it's prejudicial. It's prejudicial. I'm not sure we can repeat. When, when you can't, I think we can't replay it. Um, suffice to say that well, he suggested that she may be having you know, a different um, downfall than she expected. Yes. It, um, when you can't repeat a prime minister's speech the next day, because it's <laughs> subdued to say, you know, there's something's right. gone wrong. But we've been talking about party conferences happening in great English cities like Manchester and Liverpool. There's a really key event happening in Scotland between these two party conferences, and that is a by-election, which is a must-win by-election for Labour against the SNP. It's the Rutherglen Glen and Hamilton by-election. It was triggered after constituents voted to oust the SNP MP Margaret Ferrier, who'd breached COVID rules. So there's a by-election. And she you... was the lady who took the train That's right. back to her constituents, even though That's she right. knew she had COVID. Now, I think Labour will win this by-election. In fact, if Labour doesn't win this by-election, it would be very, very bad for Keir Starmer. We'll find out the results uh, tonight. So we don't know it now. Labour's going to win, but winning is not enough. If Labour wins because the SNP voters stay at home, which is, I think, what people are expecting to happen, that doesn't necessarily tell you how things are going to go when it comes to the general election. And don't forget, when Labour lost the election in 2010, Labour still had over 40 seats in Scotland. Today it has... One. So if Labour's going to win a majority, they need to do so much better in Scotland than they've done in the last few elections. And that is why this by-election is very important, because the scale of the victory, assuming Labour wins, will be measured to say, is there a big enough swing to, to win other seats? But the harder thing is, in a general election, when the SNP turnout will be back up again, can Labour still win seats from the SNP in Scotland? And I think this does pose a strategic challenge for Keir Starmer because um, in, in England, he can win seats simply by not being the Conservatives. If people are sick of the Conservatives, then they can vote Labour instead. He can be quite cautious about his vision and still win. But in Scotland, what he needs is people who have voted independence in the referendum, who voted SNP in recent elections, to decide that they actually want to vote Labour in order to get a Labour outcome in Westminster. They can be anti-Tory and vote SNP. But for Labour to win seats from the SNP, he needs people to say, I'm not going to vote for the, the anti-Westminster party, the SNP. I'm going to positively vote for a Labour outcome in Westminster. In 1997, that is absolutely what Gordon Brown and Donald Dewey and Robin but Kirk and all... Of, they were all big figures. Big figures. In Scottish politics as well as in UK politics. That is and right. That, the Labour Party doesn't have that. Uh, these days. And question mark, going into this conference, lots of people in Scotland will be saying, we need more galvanising, exciting, changing vision for Keir Starmer if we're going to build the kind of support for Labour that you saw in 97, 2001, 2005. And that is a big challenge for Keir Starmer and also for Rachel Reeves. So we've been very focused on domestic events and the party conferences. But what we do know is that affairs around the world can have a huge impact on our politics. As the last Labour government found out, and perhaps the next Labour government's going to find out because of what's happening in America right now. We'll come back to that after this break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. We're going to talk about the last-minute budget deal in America to try to avoid the shutdown, uh, the deal which lost Speaker Kevin McCarthy his job. But the interesting thing is that support, financial support from America for Ukraine was carved out of that budget deal because of political opposition in the Congress in America. So this could have a huge implication. It's something that's probably not getting quite as much attention as it should because American support for Ukraine is what has sustained the Ukrainian war effort alongside the bravery of those Ukrainian soldiers and, of course, the morale-lifting leadership of Zelensky. It's American weaponry, American technology, which is really helping the Ukrainians on the battlefield. And the Republicans, I'm afraid influenced by Trump and that kind of rightist element of the American uh, Republican scene, are saying no more funding for Ukraine. Now, America has put in tens of billions of dollars into Ukraine, completely dwarfs the effort of any other country, including Britain, although we've done our bit as well. And it is a sign of how American politics is going that you've got the Democrats on the left being absolutely solid for supporting foreign intervention, essentially fighting a foreign war. And you've got the right, the Republicans, who used to be the party you associated with being the Cold War warriors and the like, saying, no, 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 enough money. Um, the interesting thing is, I was looking at the polling on this. If you go back to January, America and Britain looked actually very strong in their support, not for troops. There's never been support for troops, but public support for backing Ukraine, for giving missiles. America and Britain were both kind of strong leaders in this. And what's happened since January is Britain sustained its position, but within the US, 
support amongst Republicans and independents has gone down quite sharply over the years, the year, which probably goes alongside um, the emergence of Donald Trump as a credible candidate for the election. I think it's always hard to persuade taxpayers, including American taxpayers, that they should be spending billions of dollars, in their case, over $70 billion on aid for Ukraine, when people say, well, where's the money for my home community? Where's the money for disaster relief here in my state? Uh, and the like. Kevin McCarthy is an interesting guy, um, no longer the speaker. I came across him quite a bit in my role as chancellor. And he is a real you know, operator, old style guy who can put these deals together. Very good company, should be said, as well, entertaining. Um, and if he couldn't put together a deal, and the Republicans can't choose a leader who can command a majority in the Congress, then there is at least a question mark over America's ongoing commitment. Personally, and I was talking to a very senior American general today about this as it happens, he thought... That was that while you were walking your dog? That was in between... Ed, Ed Sheeran. In between Ed Sheeran and, and Ed Balls. An esteemed American general happened to be walking through Notting Hill. Esteemed American general who... Um, but it was a... a, a it's supposed to be all Chatham House, so I can't, I okay. can't tell you. It wasn't actually at Chatham House. but Fine. And he was saying that he thought there could be a deal done which would involve giving extra money to some of the individual US states, giving some money for border security on Mexico, the southern border, that that would buy off Republicans to at least give Ukraine military assistance to the general election in America next year. After that, all bets are off if Trump wins. If it's a Biden administration after the election or a Democrat administration, uh, then the support for Ukraine will be sustained. That has a huge impact on the West. People will say, by the way, well, can't we just go alone as Europeans, Britain and the EU? But the, but the election in Slovakia is also interesting. Right. So in Slovakia, you've had a government elected that is explicitly pro-Russian. In Poland, they have decided to stop assistance to Ukraine. That's a story that hasn't got as much attention perhaps as it should have done. And I would say from my experience in 2011, when we were fighting the war in Libya against Gaddafi, which was very much an effort led by David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France, it became immediately clear that you can't launch even that kind of campaign without American support. So important is the American military effort. So much bigger is it than anything that any European country can offer. It's interesting though. That it, it is absolutely essential in Ukraine. And without it, we'll, there'll be a lot of promises about helping Ukraine, but it will be, I'm afraid, a devastating blow uh, to the people of Ukraine and their fight for freedom. It's interesting though, isn't it? If you look at um, what's been happening in the Conservative Party, you have these sort of, you know, Trumpian uh, influences happening, speeches about anti-establishment language, a low-tax vision. There's no doubt that Liz Truss is trying to appeal to that kind of brand of American conservative in what she's talking about. But so far, the one place where um, that wing of the Conservative Party has not followed the Trump lead is on foreign policy. You've not had that kind of anti uh, intervention in Ukraine rhetoric. Actually, Nigel Farage um, did a bit of it mm, a year ago. I thought got quite burnt. But of course, back then, Putin was strong and doing well. In some ways, as Putin has weakened and the Russians are doing less well, is it easier to start to doubt whether supporting Ukraine is 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 the right priority to spend money without looking like you are um, supporting Putin in the way you would have done a year ago? My question to you is. Is it possible 
that you might see the kind of trend we've seen in America amongst the Republicans this year start to infiltrate that part of the Conservative Party and people start to raise questions on the right as to whether or not supporting Ukraine is really the priority for Britain. I think you definitely could see that happen in the British Conservative Party. And not at the moment, as you say, and people like Boris Johnson out of office uh, are saying, well, I'm going around Washington, I'm going to Ukraine, I'm, I'm drumming up support. But fundamentally, you know, there is a big overlap between that wing of the Conservative Party and the sort of Brexit uh, approach to relations with other countries that ties in with a kind of little England, uh, very old-fashioned Tory view, which is we're not going to meddle in other people's affairs. That you know, It's Britain first in every sense, and uh, we want to keep a big navy, we want to keep a big army. I used to say as chancellor to these people, you always want to spend a load of money on ships and soldiers, but you are absolutely against ever using those things. And um, I think you could see these developments play out. Anyway, it's something definitely to watch. I mean, because- so far, though, um, proximity, Salisbury, also that sort of Churchillian um, ethos of, 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 of supporting our European allies against fascist threats, all those things have stopped that happening in the Conservative Party. The other thing here is that there's been a strong cross-party consensus. And uh, I would think Keir Starmer has every interest in continuing to back NATO and its efforts to support Ukraine, because that allows him to say, I am not But maybe the Jeremy fir- Maybe the first question that's thrown to a Keir Starmer prime minister is, what do you do now the Americans under President Donald Trump have pulled their support for the Ukrainians? Look, well, I think it's a nightmare. On to questions. Thanks to everyone for all of the questions you've sent in. We've been really impressed by the thought that's gone into some of these questions, proper detailed questions. There's tons of them as well. Really, really interesting. Keep sending them in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. So here's our first one. Hello, Ed and George. Doug Porter here. Great podcast. Really enjoy the debate uh, and the toing and froing and the reminiscing over the uh, past political jousting. Um, I've got a very simple question. How is adding VAT to private school fees anything other than a tax on aspiration? Well, I would say it is a tax on aspiration, but let's be clear, it's not going to transform the education system of this country either. I think if you present it as some great instrument of social mobility, then you're kidding yourself. It's going to be quite a small tax. It'll probably not put off most people from sending their children to private schools. Those who make big sacrifices in terms of other things they spend the money on will continue to do so. It's going to make no difference at all to the people who are coughing up 40, 50 grand to send their children to Eton or Winchester, I suspect. So it's it's a useful pot of money that can be spent on a small project from the point of view of the shadow chancellor and the leader of the Labour Party. But it does, I suppose, you know, cause this problem for Labour, which is it does say to the middle classes, we're not really for you, we don't approve of your life choices. And there is definitely a danger for Labour in sending out that message to what can be quite a significant and important part of the electorate. Well, of course, it never happened in um, the Blair-Brown years. Tony Blair had sent his kids to the oratory. Um, There was no way he was going to start putting a tax on private schools. Gordon Brown was so allergic to the idea of ever raising or extending VAT that he didn't want to raise or extend it for anything. uh, And that included um, for this. I guess there has been a change since 2010. Uh, The IFS 
Institute for Fiscal Studies did a report earlier in the year. They said it's not an insignificant amount of money. The net raising would be £1.3 billion a year from VAT on school fees. But if you look at the facts today, the average private school spends £15,200 per pupil on um, education. In the state school system, that's £7,200 a year. So the private school system is spending 90% more than the state school system. And that gap was much smaller in 2010. It was only a 40% gap rather than a 90% gap. So I guess the argument that Labour would set will make is the gap's got wider. We're under pressure financially. We can raise £1.3 billion to close the gap. That's what justifies it. And that's what they're going to do. It's not going to close the gap. No, but it it helps close the gap a bit. A bit. All I'm saying to you is that's how they'll justify it. it, I'm saying they'll justify it, but let's not pretend that this is going to make any real difference to the gap in education. I thought Jeremy had made a mistake in the budget when he actually attacked Labour and in so doing stood up the fact that it raises over a billion pounds a year because, you know, as you know, George, a billion pounds, never something to sniff at. A billion here and a billion there and soon it adds up to serious money. Our next question comes from John Greenwood, who says, why is there such a narrative of future falling interest rates in the UK? Given the long-term average is 5%, I've always had the feeling that central bankers have been wishing to raise rates back towards that level for the past 20 years. Now we are finally back around 5%. Why would the central bank wish to lower them again? I think he's saying here, isn't he, that we used to be 5% back when we were much younger, uh, I think Adam Smith used to say 5% was the natural interest rate. That's all changed post-financial crash. But won't the central banks actually be pretty pleased that it's back to 5% because it gives them more room to move, not just up, but down? What do you think? I think the financial markets are the people who are judging here what they think central banks are going to do. And at the moment, the financial markets think that the interest rate five or 10 years out is going to be lower. And the reason is because at the moment, we have a thing called an inverted yield curve, where the central banks have raised interest rates much more in the short term to get inflation down. But actually, that risks slowing the economy or going into recession. The markets think that as that starts to work through and inflation comes down, then the central banks will cut their interest rates and the yield curve will move to a more normal upward sloping path where long-term interest rates are higher than short rates. And so this is just, um, John, people thinking that the central banks have done what they needed to do and they'll then be able to cut interest rates. But it's unlikely that interest rates will go back to zero or close to zero unless there's another massive crisis of some kind that we can't anticipate. I think the question is, are they going to go back to zero? Are they going to stay up more around, as John said, the historic average for short rates around 5% or somewhere in between? And I think it depends upon the answer to two questions. First of all, is the inflation we've seen in the last year or so just a post-pandemic aberration because of supply chain problems and problems in Ukraine with energy prices? And we're going to go back to the very low inflation of the last 20 years? Or is inflation more stuck in the system? And if so, interest rates will be a bit higher than they used to be. And the second question is, uh, are we going to see the kind of glut of savings in the world we've seen in the last 20 years from people in particular in China, but also in ageing populations across Europe saving more? Is that going to start to unwind? Are we going to see more consumption Um, that means investment chasing a smaller pool of savings, that would mean long-term underlying real interest rates would be higher. Uh, We don't know the answer to that yet, but I would think we're not going to go back to very, very low interest rates, but they are probably going to go down again. And the central banks, John, won't mind so long as they're meeting their inflation targets. Well, there you go. 
Economics 101 from Mr. Ed Balls. And I hope you learned something from that, George. I always learn from you. I hope you did. Right, good. Economics 101 done. We can go on to our final question this week from Polly Hernandez. Hi, Ed and George. Love the podcast. I would like to know which MP or parliamentarian you admire most, but crucially from a party other than your own. Mm, Good question, Polly. I had a think about this when I saw your question come in. I'm going to say someone who I don't particularly know very well, but I did admire from the other side of the House of Commons. That's Stella Creasy. She's a backbench Labour MP. She campaigned on high indebtedness and companies like Wonga charging very high interest rates. She ran a pretty effective campaign in Parliament that forced me as Chancellor to introduce new laws that capped interest rates, which I don't think I would have done hadn't been for Stella's campaign and it in fact put Wonga out of business. So if, if you want, she's also, I think it's the case, put up with some pretty vile abuse to continue her career in public service. So for her courage, for the way she organises herself in Parliament and for the real change she's had in our country, I'm going to pick Stella Creasy. Great question, Polly. I, um, I remember Gordon Brown talking to me about um, becoming an MP in 1983 and one of the most amazing experiences he had was seeing uh, Edward Heath from the backbenches making a speech condemning um, those people trying to promote capital punishment and just saying that it was one of the most impressive speeches he'd ever seen in in Parliament. So it's not always your own side who impress you. Uh, I also sat with Gordon once in one of the rooms in the House of Commons meeting John Hume, who was just such a brave, amazing nationalist. He won the leader. Nobel Prize. He won the Nobel Prize and put up with huge um, kind of risk in his life to to help prepare the way for what became the Good Friday Agreement. However, uh, he's deceased now. So I'm going to choose as my um, person to highlight Ken Clark, who I think um, is you know, a very kind of good parliamentarian. Um, I didn't agree with everything that he, that he said. Um, I think, though, that we would always have been worried if he had become leader of the Conservative Party. Certainly Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were in 96, uh, 97. Uh, I remember being in, in Parliament when he was goading Gordon Brown. Did he want interest rates to be higher or lower? Should inflation be higher or lower? He was he was very, very effective in the Commons, but also a very principled person, so- stood up for what he believed, um, not just on European issues. He, uh, when he was the Lord Chancellor in the early part of the Cameron government, had no truck with all of the pressure on him around the ECHR repealing. After I got into trouble in 2008 in a kind of scandal involving Peter Mandelson and yachts and all that kind of thing, we decided, and I decided, that I had to preempt the calls on David Cameron calling for my resignation by getting Ken Clark back into our shadow cabinet as the shadow business secretary. So I, I thought I'd lead this initiative, so no one would suggest that I should do it. And I had a secret meeting with Ken Clark at my house in West London. And this all went disastrously wrong when he turned up in his battered car and he couldn't work out how to pay for the parking ticket so that he could park on his mobile phone. And so I had to come out. There was supposed to be a secret meeting. I was there in the street for about 15 minutes with my own mobile phone and his car trying to work out how to get him some parking in the Bayswater area. Look, this story only begs one question. What were you doing on this yacht with um, Peter Mandelson and and who else was there? All sorts of... (laughs) 
characters from British and <laughs> well, we're going to come back to that. We will. We all right. I Somebody should you, ask a question for future weeks. We will. We George, will, what was going on on that yacht? We will. Since I survived Yacht Gate, I'm now prepared to talk about it. If you email your question in, we'll make sure George answers that. And just to say before we go, we also had an email from Caroline Walsh, who um. I met in the street last week and I promised to answer any question that she sent in. And so she asks, should we cut our losses and scrap HS2 or can it be completed? I'm afraid, Caroline, Prime to Rishi Sunak made a whole speech answering your question yesterday. And um, it's been, unlike George's yacht, sunk. So that's the end of that one. Someone did say, a Tory MP said to me this morning, Rishi Sunak promised to stop the boats and instead he stopped the trains. And on that bombshell... Uh, we've come to the end of our time. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with questions and comments by emailing questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk or by commenting on our socials where you can find us at Poll Currency or indeed you can watch the extended clips of this show on YouTube. That's all for this week. We will see you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.